Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Welcome back, everybody. This is T. Cole Newton coming to you, as always, pre-recorded from the beautiful patio here at 12 Mile Limit. With me, as always, is my inimitable co-host, Mr. Steve Yamada, the Night King of New Orleans. Shadow King, sir. Shadow King. Shadow King of New Orleans. Shadow King of New Orleans. It's going to be a thing, I swear. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Around with Stephen Cole. It's great to have you here. Uh, We've got another fantastic guest here. This one uh, from out of town, not a local New Orleanian. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? All right. My name's Fred Parent. I'm one of the national brand ambassadors for Hendrix Gin. How many national brand ambassadors are there for Hendrix Gin? Uh, I feel like William Grant and Son, right that's now, the portfolio in which Hendrix uh, is. Absolutely. Is, is. Um, right now, we have four of us, including myself here in the U.S., uh, 17 of us worldwide. That is a lot of people yeah, selling it's, Hendrix. It, it's the largest group we've ever had at Hendrix. Um, it's kind of a, a testament to how much the brand is growing and the fact that we're we're really in a lot of countries now. So for most countries that are a bit smaller than the U.S., we have one ambassador per country. Um, but because the U.S. has so many wonderful markets, um, we actually used to have three. We just added a fourth ambassador last year yeah. so that we could spend a bit more time in town. It's interesting to see um, the uh, different portfolios right now and who is like you know losing ambassadors, who's gaining ambassadors sure. at this point. I mean, the roles have definitely changed recently. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar or casual listeners who are not in the bar industry as well, uh, Fred, why don't you go ahead and jump in there and uh, tell us like what uh, to to the layman if you will Mm -hmm. uh, what exactly a brand ambassador for a liquor company is Uh, I love answering that question I feel like (laughs) the answer changes every time I answer it Um, so it's it's, it really spans um, I'd say it's mostly rooted in education and uh, events um, and cocktail knowledge so the majority of us come from a bartending mixology background Um, I kind of cut my teeth in New York on the bar scene there and did a lot with special events um, so really in, in my role, it's everything from doing things, um, like interviews, like we're doing right now to hosting an event. I'm doing uh, moonlight and miracles tonight, um, with some other of our, uh, sister brands from the portfolio. Um, but we also do a lot of education with bartenders. We host a lot of events that are just for bartenders, um, as well as do lots of larger scale festivals, like food, and wine festivals, music festivals, things like that. Also, what a lot of people don't realize is a tremendous amount of emails. <laughs> <laughs> emails and invoices, People are right? like, so your job's all just drinking cocktails and like carrying on. I was like, it's mostly drinking cocktails. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting thing because uh, they, well, liquor companies has two options, basically. Mm-hmm. They either get a salesperson or they get a bartender to, op- uh, to occupy these roles. And sure. I think they're always like, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't think. Sure. If you get a salesperson, like a lot of bartenders will be like, oh, that person doesn't even know what it's to be a bartender mm-hmm. if you get a bartender bartenders are kind of you know <laughs> i mean they're miscreants when it comes down to it. so many of us are <laughs> um and it, so many times i've heard people have gotten these brand jobs regardless of what the size is mm-hmm. the very first month they come down to it, and they're like oh my god expense reports it's it's tough i mean like when you're expensing everything and mm-hmm. like you're responsible for a budget as well that's sure. that's something that 
especially for an industry where all of us are so cash in hand. It's sure. like, you know, we don't we don't budget, you know. It's mm-hmm. like I've got mm-hmm. I, I mean, right now I get mean? most of my money in cash too. It's it's in the drawer. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say exactly where you might stash your money, at, <laughs> but it's it's in a undisclosed location and I go to the bank every now and then to drop mm-hmm. it off, but it's, there's no budget. It's just like there's so much money I have, you right? Know? Right. So. And it it's taken some getting used to. It's also been a great learning experience for me like in my own personal life and mm-hmm. how I've always run my own business affairs to really account for things and be accountable for things. So, yeah, I mean, like coming from behind the bar where it's a lot of cash in hand and a lot of leave it at work. Um, it was a big adjustment, you know, to, to be in meetings, to be up at nine in the morning often and be answering emails and be available in that way, uh, as well as to, to do lots of expensing and lots of pre-planning. Um, a lot of the events we do, some, some big, big events might take a year of planning. So mm-hmm. it's really helped me to, to not just live in the shift and kind of get more ethereal. With yeah. It. Well, you are. You, were, I feel like you were probably a little bit better prepared than a lot of just bartenders, and I, I don't mean that as a derogatory. Like, oh, they're just a bartender, but you also had a, an event production company. You were doing sure. sort of like uh, contract work mm-hmm. before you uh, got on board with Hendrix and William Grant and Sons. So did that did that prepare you better for the transition so. to that um, world? I'd say I, I always joke with people like, how'd you get this job? I was like, I didn't know this was a job till it was my job, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. And I, I had had experienced some stuff with uh, brand ambassadors in the past, but I had moved to so many different bars and I was, I'm, I'm an artist and musician as well. So I was never full feet into the industry. You know, I was always kind of doing my own thing. Um, when I started my company, Mixed Neat, I uh, was with a fellow bartender who was actually a protege of mine, who became an equal of mine, who then became a mentor of mine. And um, that kind of showed me how important it is is to work with the people you want to work with, to create your own business. And if you're going to do it your, your own way, to do it in a way that that suits you. Um, so our big thing was we decided we didn't want to work shift to shift all the time. We love bartending, but we wanted to, often our, our clients uh, would be like, how do we take you guys home? Can you come to the Hamptons with us? Can you, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm having a birthday party. I'm having a wedding shower. And so we basically created business cards while we were still fashioning what we were doing for a living and just started handing them out while we were bartending. I'm like, Hey, if you want guys want to hire out, we have a team or it'll be me and my business partner, Travis, or, you know, we had about four other bartenders in the New York area that were working with us. And that did prepare me how to like really manage event staff, how to book an event in advance, Mm -hmm. how to plan a cocktail menu. Our big thing was doing a custom menu for every client. So really like feeling out what the event was, how that was going to work. And when I started doing brand ambassador work, I realized how many parallels really were there to what I was already doing when it was kind of organic for me to kind of go into that space. Right on. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a fun ride. Do you still uh, do you still have mixed need? Do you still do, do. your, your uh, well, side um, work I'm, of event I'm, production? I would say I'm, I'm more of a silent partner now okay. um, because this this job is ever encompassing. I travel about eighty percent of my time, so. Um, we are still a company. Um, I'm not super active in the company as of right now, um, but our company has done a tremendous amount of work across the liquor industry kind of since I took this this job, which was part of the reason why I was very interested in brand ambassador work because it really does raise your profile. Um, bartending tends to be thankless work uh, as we as bartenders have seen over the many years. But over the last five or seven years, we're starting to see with the rise of the brand ambassador situation, um, you know, like world-class winners, all these different competition winners that are creating a whole nother kind of, you know, call it echelon of the bartending industry. But for me, I think it's very, very important for as a brand brand ambassador to talk to everyone, Mm -hmm. Um, not just, quote unquote, top tier bartenders. I want to talk to anyone who's interested in talking about Hendrix, talking about craft cocktails or like pushing what we do forward, you know? 
Right on. Sure. Um, I think that – so it, I've said this for a while, and I don't think it's quite accurate at this point, but I feel like the, the modern path of a bartender is like bartending for a certain period of time, acquiring a certain amount of knowledge, and then the path has to split at some point because mm. I don't think the goal at any point is to end up being – you know, however old or something like that, and being a bartender, it's like there you want to have that advancement when you own something or you've mm-hmm. moved up to it, like a next step. And I feel that like it could be brand work or it could be ownership. Ownership, yeah. yeah that, I think that seems to be the big split. Yeah, honestly. I, I, yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm kind of like going back on that because mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be quite as like you know as as black and white as sure, that goes. Sure. But um, I think that's also like that mentality is kind of like you know it's 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 given this very odd. Uh, perception for bartenders nowadays sure. like i've got I, I know bartenders now where i've met people now who's like you know i've been bartending for years like well i really want to get into brand work it's like you've just started bartending it's like mm-hmm. you, sh- you should be enjoying this now you should be honing your craft sure and like developing those skills like you don't need to worry about this right now. um it's some a conversation i've had with a few kind of uh, colleagues even who have been in the game longer than myself is there's this kind of idea with a younger generation now even people my age are a bit younger of like kind of run before you can crawl kind mm-hmm. of moment um, a lot of us came up as barbacks or, you know, really apprenticed with bartenders. Um, I didn't necessarily have one bartender that taught me everything I know. I was actually unlucky, lucky enough to bounce to so many programs that I became a head bartender before I really knew what the hell I was doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I think a lot of us <laughs> yeah, have. No, oh, yeah. Um, I haven't been there. And, and that's, <laughs> that's really kind of where, like, I cut my teeth in New York and built my own staff and built my own way of doing things. And I feel like I've been, been very lucky mm-hmm. um, to kind of have that organic approach. I feel like a lot of people now kind of see what the brand ambassador game is, what the ownership game is, a lot of young owners now. Um, but I think it, it's, you hit on something very important. It's crucial that you learn your craft before you are anxious to jump to the next echelon or level of that craft. Um, so I think that's something we're going to see in the next few years. It's possibly a return to the old school style. Like, you know, I think a lot of people have kind of rushed to the middle, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. And now they're starting to see that if they want to be creative, if they want to do it right, having that skill set is very important. I was never more confident in my skill as a bartender mm-hmm. than I was like five months into bartending. Like That's that was the point. A, yeah. I know the exact feeling. <laughs> I got this. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I'm so good at this. Why don't they put, why don't they give me all the great shifts? You know, what are they, what, how long do I have to be at this before I get recognition? <laughs> sure, sure. Me and me and Cole have very parallel paths down here as well, too, because like uh, we we came in like second wave of like the this new craft cocktail boom mm-hmm. down here in New Orleans. Like we're, we're after like the Chris Hanna, like oh, wow. uh, Chris Hanna, Kimberly Patton Bragg. We, we came like right Lou after Brow, that. Lou Brow, I think, is probably Brown, in that. Definitely. That, but um, I, I remember very distinctly this one night at Tivoli and Lee, and it was after some competition, and I can't remember exactly which one it mm. was, but I think it's it comes after that big wave of confidence, like, oh, yeah, all this other stuff, where you start like looking around, and you're like, oh, my God, they're going to realize I'm such a faker. Like, I'm such a, like <laughs> we, we definitely sat at the bar, and we were just like, we looked at each other, and we were just like, ah, oh, they're going to figure us out. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a level. I mean, sure. I think any any any. It, any sort of independent enterprise and virtual marketing is a lot of ways a very independent enterprise. You're, you are your own brand. Sure. And whenever you're trying to put a brand out there, whether it's an extension of yourself or, or a, an enterprise that's, that's more veiled, like another, mm-hmm. like a business, um, there's an element when it's new that is like everyone, there's an imposter syndrome. Like every, like, sure. Oh, I'm going to be found out They're They're all going to realize that I have and no idea what I'm doing. What's the concept too of, you know, who validates, yeah. you know, it's like, there's no school for this. There's no, master's PhD in this, or maybe, maybe coming soon. (laughs) Um, A lot of things are changing. Right. But I think it it is a weird sliding scale between like, are you allowed to do this versus like, are, you know what I mean? Like versus, Mm -hmm. um, 
are you capable of doing this? And you do have to kind of put yourself out on, out on that ledge and maybe you're not ready yet, but if you do have that confidence and you're willing to learn, Mm -hmm. that was my big thing. It's like when I went in, I had a lot of knowledge, but I wanted to learn. I was very, very, I always, even if someone had less experience than me, they might teach me something very valuable. And I think that really helped me into like forming my own staff, forming my own way of doing things, Mm -hmm. which I think is crucial. Yeah. Um, when you become a bartender, developing your own style of bartending is very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I've kind of noticed, so with the advent of bartending and all mm-hmm. these new programs opening up, and I honestly think there's a cool factor that's involved with this industry right now. Like, it's always been a cool industry, but now it's seen as, like, hip and new and, like, you know, mm-hmm. something that, you know, young folks want to get into. Not that sure. I'm that old, but <laughs> um, I, I feel like... If we, we were just talking about, like, you know, how we're second wave here in New Orleans, mm. I feel those generational gaps have just gotten, like, smaller and smaller. So we're looking at, like, mm. these, these so many different generations of bartenders, like, right now. Like, if I were to say, like, oh, yeah, started bartending three years ago, it's like you've got people who have been bartending for three years who are mentor for, like, you know, two or three different generations of bartenders. Oh. Um, I, I feel like... Uh, and, and this, I, I, I'm not 100% on this as well, but I just feel that, like, the generation before me was hungrier than I was because they had mm. so much to prove. Sure. And then I feel like with every subsequent generation, like the information is becoming a little bit more available. These opportunities are more prevalent as well. Like, sure. you know, is that desire or that need to learn as big as it was so many years ago? That's an excellent question. I think, I think it depends on where you go and who you talk to. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, part of the reason um, I've, I've worked in a lot of different markets. I was in New York. I was in the Midwest in Chicago, Texas, um, and now I'm in the Southeast, essentially covering like basically DC, Baltimore, down to Florida, New mm. Orleans, and Nashville. So I've got a really sweet music run. Yeah. <laughs> um, but part of the reason I came back down south was I wanted to speak to um, some of the markets that be considered like I guess smaller markets. I'm making quote fingers, but it's like I th- I feel like in a lot of the major cities they've been inundated and inundated with events and opportunities. But in some of these smaller markets that are just kind of really getting that credit and that craft credit, mm-hmm. um, they're very open to still getting education, to meeting and like just being a part of that. Um, but I think we're in a crucial time as as a um, industry. Because we've had this massive swell of press and people being interested in what we do now, um, where, like I said in the beginning of the conversation, this was always thankless work to me. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I wanted to be a brand ambassador was to serve bartenders mm-hmm. who always spend all of their time serving other people. Um, so I, I know I detracted a bit from your question. Um, where... Where it is now, I think it's it's a case-by-case basis, mm. to be perfectly honest. I think a lot of people think they know a lot more than they know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are still very humble. But I think w- would be my personal advice is to always be humble in this industry because mm-hmm. you'll always meet someone who's been doing it for 40 years longer than you have. Yeah. You know, when it comes down to it. Yeah. Do you ever get, um, do you ever get any pushback when you, when you signed on to be a brand ambassador with, and especially with like, it's not like it's a little startup brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Hendrix was already sure. very well established by 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think where Steve mentioned that there's a lot of bartenders who get into it and then they, they see that this brand ambassador thing is an option and they're like, Oh, I want to do that. And like oh. very quickly want to transition. There's another faction of bartenders that seem to be very almost anti brand. Like, see, so brand That's is the enemy. It's like, Oh, are you, sure. what are you doing? Selling out by selling working it. with the brand? It's like, well, how, there's nothing we could do with like right. somebody's got to make and sell the products that we're mixing with correct they were not enemies <laughs> here and i feel like there's this strange dichotomy they're like oh you went to work for a brand 
fuck that. Right. Did you get that's, that kind of pushback? That's, that's and, pretty and, new. Yeah. I'd, I'd say that sentiment is like maybe a, the last year or two mm. was the first time I went to markets who I felt hadn't even been exposed to a ton of brand work. Um, where I had multiple up and coming people where I was like, are you interested in doing this type of work? Like, you know, talk to me about it. And they're like, no, not at all. And I was honestly like surprised. And I was, I was very curious and I was like, why? And they were like, well, a lot of the brand ambassadors I know, um, really are overworked, very tired. They travel a lot. They do a lot of things that often appear very, very sexy, but in reality can be, a bit harder to manage. And I was like, that's a very good point. That's not something that a lot of people were very open with me about early on mm -hmm. as far as what this is. But I think even more so that that was an interesting point you made about like, Oh, you sold out or you're doing this. That was never part of the conversation when I was coming up ever mm -hmm. like to work for a brand. It's like, we pour these brands all the time. Um, I think the key is the only way you could be a sellout is if you don't believe in what you're selling. I think that's a big part of it. I think that happens a really lot as believe, well, too. If mm. you don't really believe in the products that you're pushing, I think it makes a big difference in the genuineness of your message. Do you think you're, I mean, I guess you, mm. you might not have, t you seem like somebody, who, you're, you're an artist, you're a musician. Sure, you, sure. You, I'm, that, there's a lot of like pride that mm. goes into that, that, that I'm, 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 I don't, this is the first time we've met, so I'm, forgive me if I'm, I'm making assumptions, but mm. you, I, my impression is that somebody who has that sort of creative background would not sign on with a company mm -hmm. if that company's sort of corporate, the, the face, the, the, yeah. the identity sure. of that company, the outward if facing it, identity of that company up, lines up with, so I, is, is, has so. Hendrix allowed you to be yourself and do you feel like the creativity that you're bringing to it aligns with the corporate brand? Because I think a lot of people who do want to get in with brand work, they're not so lucky that Hendrix is the first opportunity that comes along. That's you know, it's like you want to get into brand work, <laughs> maybe you do have to sell some things that you don't care about sure. and you have Which to be able be to, to, be, to act like you believe in them. Sure. So um, would you have ever taken a brand job to work yourself I'd, up in the I've industry? Said, I've been there? quoted saying this. Um, this is the only brand I was interested in working for. Um, I personally was not interested in brand ambassador work at all. Um, um, but I was, I had kind of come up and, uh, Jim Ryan, who was our former national ambassador, who's done a tremendous amount of stuff in new Orleans mm -hmm. and the tales and a lot of that stuff. Um, I'd known Jim for many years. And when I first moved to New York, I'd reached out to him for some advice. And after that, I guess we'd followed each other online. We didn't talk a lot, but I always admired Hendrix. I always admired the way that their brand team worked, um, how much autonomy they gave their, their brand ambassadors. So when the opportunity came for me many years later to actually work on that brand, um, it was like, you know, we've already spoken. I had just started a budding company. We were starting to have some real success in New York City. I had my doubts about whether or not I wanted to go off of that path of creating my own thing or whether I wanted to step into something already established. And I really had said, I was like, honestly, this was the only brand I was interested in working for um, when it came to the opportunity. Um, and to, to answer your, your other question, they give me a lot of leeway um, and, and levity with how I produce my events. Um, the, the focus on my events because I have a music background. I was a DJ for many years. I have a, an event that I do called Tipplers and Talking Machines, where I actually take you through the history of recorded cocktails and recorded music hmm. um, side by side. So I basically pair 1908 uh, or 1902 Edison phonograph with a Martinez. And then I do a white lady cocktail with a 1941 Andrea turn, or I'm sorry, 1941 Victrola. Then I do a more new age drink with like a 1967 turntable changer. I completely wrote that that plan, that program. Mm -hmm. When they they came to me, they were like, hey, we're going to do some things for bartenders next year. What do you want to do? I'm not sure that job looks like that for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been very, very blessed, very lucky um, to kind of have that leeway. And that keeps me engaged. So if there's any other brand managers, brands listening, keep that in mind. Because if you're going to 
come to someone because they're a creative being, because they're a creative, that they work in this industry and they can be a great advocate for you, don't forget why you got them. Right. For sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're just handing out like pre-printed swag or something like mm-hmm. that and doing tastings in grocery thing. stores, it's like, that's cool. And not to knock it, but it, it's a totally different investment of your time. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you want to talk about gin? I think Hendrix, yeah, Hendrix really, I think, very, you can look at gin as a, as a category that for many, many years, on, on the, in the popular imagination, I guess, or in the, in the, for, the, for the casual consumer, was very much in decline sure. for, for a lot of years. It was sort of a, mm-hmm. an, a bit of an obtuse flavor. And most of the gins that were available were those were very uh, sort of juniper forward, which is mm-hmm. a flavor that I, I quite enjoy. But for, the, for casual drinkers who may be used to vodka, which does not have that a, 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 that depth of flavor, that complexity, and the notes that that sort of the the Western world is a little like j- juniper is not something that people drink a lot of or have, are exposed to a lot, and so mm-hmm. it's the same with some of the other uh, traditional botanicals. Um, but Hendrix specifically, I think you can maybe look at Bombay Sapphire as one of the first bastions of like making gin cool again, and sure. but, but but by doing that. Uh, or they were able to do that because they made gin more accessible. And I think Hendrix did a, did a very good job of making a gin that, I mean, f- for better or for worse, I mean, people argue about the, its, its merit, uh, but that, that it's less juniper forward, that there are some botanicals like rose and cucumber that are a bit more accessible to, sure. to an entry level, for lack of a better term, imbiber. Um, but in, in doing so, Hendrix was a big part of making gin popular again. And sure. now every Absolutely. every boutique distillery has a gin. And in part yeah. because you can you, the, the process is a lot more approachable. You can, sure. if, if people expect gin to be just like bring in a neutral grain spirit, then infuse it with botanicals, and then that's your gin. It's like, yeah, that's how gin is made. Sure. So it's not you don't get the pushback that some of the – like a whiskey producer mm-hmm. buying all their whiskey from Indiana and they're like and bottling it and putting a label on it, and then that, that's their juice. Right. Um, uh, so – um, but yeah, do you want to speak about the revival of gin, about Hendrix's <laughs> role in that, sure. and have and and for people who like the the London Dry traditional juniper forward, sure. there seems to be some pushback against that style of that that what I think has become mm-hmm. become known as the New West gin. Sure, you want to speak to sure. some of those issues. I touched I think, on a ton of things. I think the 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 history of gin is very very interesting. Like it's something that I love when I teach, and I've gotten to study quite quite in depth and just seeing like the different waves. But just to start kind of in modern history in the eighties and nineties, that's when vodka had a big time. You know, vodka really came out of nowhere, essentially. And the only gin that really stood in was Bombay Sapphire because they were the ones that introduced distilled gin, like the, the whole concept of like that distilled gin with different flavors. So in the 80s, they had some great success and really got that thing back. But really, in the 90s, it was a lot about vodka in the white spirits category. When we get to the end of the 90s, that's when Hendrix was developed. And Hendrix was developed by William Grant & Sons, which has one of the greatest distilling pedigrees in the world um, in the Scotch whiskey trade and, and some other things. What's so interesting about our story is they bought the stills that we make Hendrix in in 1966. Charles Gordon, the great-great-grandson of William Grant, bought those stills saying, one day I think we're going to make a gin. You know, put them in the, the warehouse on the Gervin Distillery, and almost 30-some years later um, – Leslie Gracie, who's now our master distiller, and even David Stewart, who is the uh, master distiller of the of the Balvenie and Glenfiddich, um, who's also a secret gin aficionado, many don't know, <laughs> um, really started working on the concept of Hendrix. Now, Leslie came from uh, a background in medicine, and actually, in, in, and she's a chemist by trade and, and a botanist. When she was thinking about making Hendrix, it was all about she, – she's a little synesthetic like myself. I talk in colors a lot. She talks in shapes. And she often talks about Hendrix as a very round flavor. 
And part of that comes from the way it's distilled, the types of botanicals we use. And that, I think, really speaks to the approachability. So that's the only reason I mentioned that story is we use a Carterhead still and a Bennett still. So the Bennett made in 18, circa 18, 1860 is a traditional pot still, copper pot still that you steep the botanicals in the belly. So we take our 11 botanicals, steep those, and then we also take those same 11 botanicals and, and use them in a Carterhead still which is circa 1945, very, very different. That actually heats the neutral grain spirit to a vapor, passes through those botanicals in a flavor basket um, as vapor, and then becomes liquid again. So you have these two proper London dry gins that are phenomenal. Like they're really good by themselves with these two, these 11 botanicals. But then we combine those two and add the essence of cucumber and rose last. Um, because if you were to use hot distillation for cucumber and rose, they're so delicate, it would be more like cabbage and chlorophyll. You know what I mean? So um, they actually do something more like making, um, it's almost more like making perfume, high, high, like to make an essence, essentially, that is then added uh, very last to Hendrix before it's brought to um, to bottling strength. So I think it's important to mention those things kind of just to get back to like why Hendrix is that. Now, juniper is very present in Hendrix. However, it's not the only flavor that's present. So, you know, orange peel, lemon peel, coriander, angelica root, orris root, um, Yarrow, like a tremendous amount of other flavors that are at play. And then you also get this depth of flavor. So when you're getting these two different gins, you're not just getting um, coriander. You're getting coriander from these two different stills. When that cucumber and rose is added, I think it does make it very smooth, very balanced. It has this great floor, slightly floral nose. It's very crisp. Um, I always joke about it. I call Hendrix a gateway gin. Like Hendrix is a gin that for I've had so many people come up to me. I don't drink gin. Gin makes you sin. I don't touch the stuff. And I'm like, gin makes you win. Give it a try. And they try it with, you know, obviously within a really good cocktail is a great way to try something that you maybe haven't or maybe have, have an, don't have an affinity for already. And I'd almost say 99%, 100% turnaround rate of, oh, my God, that's not so bad. That's actually really good. And I think kind of just to draw back to, to our greater conversation, that's what a brand ambassador's job is, is not to be pushy is mm-hmm. to give people those opportunities and those options for something they may have not tried for a really long time. And um, a big thing was, you know, in the 60s, gin was supreme. Gin and single malt scotch reigned supreme. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people looked at gin as like, ah, that's my grandfather's drink. That's my right. father or my mother's drink. Like, that's not really for me. Um, but now we're seeing with this revival of the craft cocktails that really in the craft cocktail game, gin is king when it yeah. comes to drinks, when it comes to how many drinks are made. With a spirit, I'd say gin probably ranks among among the white one. spirits, but yeah. then the mixology world, yeah, it's the sure. it's a lot of people's favorite. I think, sure. nowadays. To the detriment of poor vodka, right? Jeez. <laughs> well, I think the big difference, and I love vodka, but it's like gin actually imparts many more flavors. It's mm-hmm. a bit more complex in that way. So I think vodka is going to just really take on the flavors that you're mixing with it, and it's going to be that. Right. With gin, it, it allows it to play a little bit more and. You know, get, let give you some some options to, t- to tinker as a bartender, right. A little bit more. I think uh, Gateway is perfect. I, mm-hmm. I my first experience is working in craft cocktail bars. Uh, that's exactly was the thing. People say I don't like gin. Huh? You need to try Hendrix because right. it's just like it's not going to taste like you know. Because everybody like immediately, it's like they had a bad experience with gin and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, it tastes like a Christmas tree. It's like, well, I mean, really bad gin. I mean, a bottle of <laughs> sure. aristocrat gin does taste like a Christmas tree, <laughs> but that's probably because it's uh, three drops of pine salt in there to give it that ginny flavor. <laughs> hey. Just the right amount. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, aristocrat at Brandon Bastard's coming on here. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I think the great thing with Hendrix is, I mean, it was uh, like rising tide raises all mm-hmm. boats. I mean, like, you know, a lot of these brands 
that like got to market and that's that's a big thing i think with a lot of brands that are launching now like mm-hmm. and i i don't i don't i feel like i don't see as many brands that are launching or the to, to or maybe they're just not like getting through as big as 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 some of these other things but like hendrix came out like at, like when hendrix really hit it like big with like craft cocktails and it kind of crossed over to casual consumerism as well which mm-hmm. is great i i kind of equate that a little bit in my mind with saint germain as well like really just kind of crossing over as well it's like you know in craft cocktails it was bartender's ketchup for a long right. period of time it was going yeah. in everything sure but then it also really made that leap to casual consumerism as well, where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you straddle both these worlds with with craft cocktails. That's not always the case. Sure. You know, it's like there's Amari and like all these other spirits that's like, oh, man, we really love like sherry and mm. like all these other things. It's like they're not crossing that line yet. I mean, they might eventually it at some point. It takes a bit more time often. Yeah, yeah that's so, a great point. That's a great yeah, it's point. It's just interesting to kind of see that and just, I don't mm-hmm. see those brands being developed as much. Things True. that are like, you know, pulling people in. It's just like, how many of these trends have we seen come and go where it's just mm-hmm. like, this is the next up and coming thing and it's just not, it's not hitting casual consumers. One of the problems I have with the sort of mixology scene in general is that a lot of it seems to be playing to the to the home crowd. You know, that mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of what, like new mixology bars yeah. and like cocktail bars are like, I want to do this in a way that that makes that is appealing to other people with it that are already in the craft bartending world mm. but not doing a, a really effective job at reaching out to casual consumers and I think there's only so much to gain from from playing to people who are already on your side you know that's an excellent and point. yeah that I, and I do think Hendrix mm-hmm. has done a great job of of bridging the gap sure and that, that people who I think yeah the casual I, consumer is I important. think I think it's very important to give people the information that they're seeking and I think that's something that Hendrix has always done very, very well is, is to interact with people, uh, not just bartenders, but with consumers, with people that are interested in trying our liquid. And I've, I've, uh, you mentioned earlier that it's like I kind of came onto it when Hendrix was kind of much bigger. Um, and some of my predecessors did really, uh, as I call it, God's work, really building this brand that's, it's still a small batch gin. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's so interesting is in the last, I think is there years, is there a legal definition for small batch in, in this? Uh, in uh, this world? Usually means less than a thousand liters per distillation. Um, uh-huh. Hendrix actually sits around five hundred liters, four hundred fifty to five hundred liters per distillation. Um, that's something that's crucial to us because that quality of care. Um, Leslie Gracie is said to have one of the most formidable noses and palates in the game, and Leslie actually noses and tastes every batch of Hendrix hmm. before it goes to bottles. So, like, I think that's why small batch is getting popular because it's attention to detail, it's attention to care. Um, is that you're not just trying to mass produce so much that you, if you make a mistake, you won't notice it. Um, not to say the mistakes aren't made, but nothing is going to go into our bottle without having passed through the nose of those that really, that really get it. So I right. think that's really crucial. Julio, well, uh, that's going to pretty much wrap up this segment real awesome. quickly. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be back in a, in a little bit. We'll make a we'll make a drink, and then we'll pop uh, we'll pop back with a, some more talk about gin on the flip side. Uh, but that's gonna that's gonna do us here with Fred. So we we, we tend to let, let our guests make uh, what we call a, a parting shot. Or, awesome. So if there's a, if you want to just <laughs> reintroduce yourself, talk about just, uh, what you do, and just one if there's one takeaway you want our listeners to have sure. from your your gener- kind visit to our to our humble podcast what what do you want our our our, um, our listeners to sure. to um, know about you this, or your this work? city i love this city um <laughs> uh, my grandmother was born in new orleans uh, oh. my grandfather was born in madisonville louisiana my father was born in, in new orleans uh, i grew i was born in los angeles where my family moved when he was quite young every time i come back here i feel this familial like 
deep love for this city. Um, I love what you guys do with cocktails. I love what you guys have done um, from a historical perspective up until modern day. Um, so the main thing I'd love to for the listeners to take away is that we're very invested in, in New Orleans, in Louisiana, um, in this part of the country, and in supporting the growth of craft cocktails and supporting the bartenders that are making it happen. Because for a lot of my friends down here, I see them during tales. I try and get back down as, as often <laughs> as I can to not catch them in that mode because oh, yeah. um, I feel like there are some of the, some, some wonderful programs some wonderful bars here. Um, and yeah, keep on the lookout. We'll be doing some more events coming soon. I do. I've, I've, I've done a lot of work as I was coming up and, and, and still we I've worked very closely with a lot of people both nationally and locally from William Grant and Sons. And I think the, the support that I got from William Grant and Sons has been a big part of why I am where I am in my career. That's so awesome. I'm, I'm glad that you still are, are, are dedicated to <laughs> the continued development of the New Orleans scene. Because I, I, I probably wouldn't be here without that support having wow. been in place. That's, so. that's beautiful. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so once again, uh, if you want to say, this is my name, this is what I do. Sure. Uh, my name's Fred Parent. I am uh, the brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin. And uh, I love to make really great gin cocktails. In particular, right. the martini. Cool. That's, that's we'll, the favorite? <laughs> awesome. We're going to jump behind the bar, and we'll be right back with the round with Stephen Cole. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Right, y'all. We're about to jump behind the bar again. It's Cole's turn to make a drink using uh, some fantastic spirits. Cole, what you got in mind for us this week? I've got a drink called the Buzz Aldrin. It's essentially a sort of half martini, half bee's knees, a melding of two classic uh, gin cocktails uh, named for one of my favorite astromen. <laughs> Do you have a list? Is there a top ten favorite astromen? There's an astronaut actually called is called is named Michael Collins. Is the I, I brought him up once in a history class. I was like, no, the astronaut, not the Irishman. Um, <laughs> he was on a, the Apollo Eleven mission with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. But he was the one that had to stay in the oh, lunar yeah. orbiter, and he didn't get to walk on the moon. Right. And he wrote a book about his experience as a NASA later, and he just talked shit about the moon. It was just like, shit it is a moon. desolate, empty place full of nothing, and I can't wait to go back to Earth. How would he know? He I know. That's the thing. It was clearly just jealous that he didn't get to touch it. All right. All right. Well, let's go to a less salty astronaut, the Buzz Aldrin. What do we got inside this drink, Cole? Uh, we are going to start with an ounce and a quarter of our Third Ward Gin. You're going to be hearing a little bit more about Third Ward Gin in the second half of our episode when we visit from our, with our friends from Cajun Spirits Distillery. I'm sure you could make a cocktail like this one with, uh, with Hendrix also, if you were so inclined, our, our, our visitor from the first. But I think a little bit more of a, the, the intense botanical notes of the Third Ward Gin. It's a bit more of a traditional style than Hendrix, and I think that works better in this cocktail. So we got, a, we got the gin in there. This is a gin episode, after all. <laughs> Next, we're going to have one ounce of Carpano Dry Vermouth, our benevolent sponsor over at uh, uh, Fratelli Branca. They have Carpano uh, Dry. It's a delicious vermouth. Then we're going to have a full ounce of Verjuice, which is, uh, for those who aren't aware, a type of sour grape juice. It's made from, uh, from grapes that are unripe, hence its tart flavor. You can use it as a substitute for, for citrus or for other uh, souring agents in cocktails, but it's, it's much lighter. It's much more delicate. It's not quite as sharp. Uh, usually with citrus, I, usually, I do about a, a one-to-one with syrups or a, a two-part uh, liqueur to one-part citrus. Verjus, I do about a one-to-one with liqueurs and about, uh, uh, because it's not quite as sour. Uh, I'd like to think as well, Cole, this is also one of your uh, 
uh, secret bag of tricks ingredients. Oh yeah, uses, I uh, constantly pretty, use yeah. spare for for contests for for all sorts of stuff. It's it's got a very non-specific acidity. Uh, it's got a very bright, light flavor. It doesn't get used a ton, so it it goes uh, and it goes well with everything. And I also like to use it in stirred drinks. Most people, when you use juices in a drink, you wind up shaking the drink. But the delicacy and the transparency, also just the optics of Verjus, make a good for stirred sours, which is a, a rarity in this cocktail world of ours. Yeah. So then, the last ingredients was a half an ounce of honey syrup, which is another one of my go-to ingredients, and the thing that makes it a, uh, a bee's knees variation. So we're gonna give that. We got it in there. We're gonna give it a little stir here in our mixing glass. It's got a lovely kind of pale straw color. I'm gonna strain it right here into a coupe. You can use a martini glass if you prefer. I tend to use them interchangeably. For our home uh, mixologists as well, um, would it be okay to serve this drink straight up on the rocks? Like you can like serve it on the rocks. You can serve. I like it in a coupe because I think the aromatics are really nice, mm. and I, I think the I, I wouldn't want it diluted much more than it already is. It's kind of a delicate drink, so I think uh, a neat short pour, like in a in a an old-fashioned glass without ice might be a better low presentation if you didn't want to do it in a coupe or a martini glass. We don't have that in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, it's done. I've, I've, I don't present it with a garnish. It's just a light, off-white, kind of pale, golden hue, bright. Uh, got, got some citrus notes from the gin, but not a ton. There's not a lot of citrus in the third ward. Um, but it's a, it's a delicate bee's knees martini variation called the Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> Fantastic. Love the pun as well. Thanks. All right, Cole. Let's head back over to the studio, and we're going to meet our two new guests coming on. And uh, we'll catch you in just a couple seconds, listeners. All right. Let's get these drinks out there. Welcome back, everybody. This is Cole. I'm here with Steve, as always. We've got a couple of guests for you for the second half of our Ginny Gin Gin episode. Uh, we've got the Hike Brothers from Cajun Spirits Distillery. Uh, why don't you go introdu- ahead and introduce yourself, say what your role is at the distillery. Uh, my name is Edward Hike. I am the distiller and manager and bottler, and I do a lot of stuff over there. All and right. I, I'm uh, Gus Hike. I'm the uh, owner and distiller and also everything else. So is, how many employees do you have? Is it just the two of you and you do everything? Is that, that the type of operation we're it, talking about? It, yeah, yep. ni- 95%. Uh, and then if uh, family members accidentally stop by while we're doing something, we <laughs> put them to work as well. <laughs> just just employ them immediately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so, so yeah, thanks for coming by to see me at work. Lift these heavy bottles. <laughs> yeah, right. So what's it like working in such close proximity to your brother? I've got a brother, and if I had to work behind a bar with him, I'd strangle him to death first 30 minutes i think it's just like you know it's like get out of my way yeah, done yeah. With. we we definitely have those days uh where uh you know it goes back to some kind of an argument you know where it's oh yeah well uh when i was eight you smashed was eight, my you legos this, so. yeah. that's why you have to do this now right. but yeah. yeah we butt heads for sure and we get in arguments mm-hmm. um i think we've actually gotten better at communicating <laughs> Over the last three years, you know, <laughs> right on, right. Yeah. I, mean, I guess you, you kind of have, have to. to, yeah, yeah, you have to, <laughs> right? Exactly. Cool. We've gotten better at fighting. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it probably also fosters for like the goal being a little bit better as well too, because it's not just like you know you're not working for somebody, you're working with your family as well too to make a good product to ensure a future and everything. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, that means that we have to be you know constantly looking at where we want to go and what we want to do better and and because it's family and there's so much family involved that um that it is a very intimate project does it is it harder to check each other if if one of you thinks that the other one is in doing something in the wrong direction is it harder because you're family to have those conversations and also be aware that you you know that you're gonna have to have it over the thanksgiving table too yeah yeah 100 percent. i think so what do you think 
Yeah, it can get there, uh, especially when other family members become involved, you know. So, you know, maybe you complained to, about him to another family member, and then now all of a sudden they're in the conversation. Like, well, I think you should be a little nicer to your brother. <laughs> no, it has nothing lines. to do with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, um, it's fun. But the, the biggest thing is, you know, you have to have somebody you can trust. And I think that goes pretty far in any time you're dealing with alcohol, whether it's bars or distilleries or breweries. And so that's uh, the, the most important thing that we get out of it, you know. Cool. All right, let's just jump into a little bit of a history as well for all those not familiar with the distillery itself. How did you all get started off and what were the first couple of years like for you? Well, um, we got started in 2010, 2011 with the idea that it was actually something that we could do. Um, and... Um, and so we, you know, built out the space and uh, basically started playing with recipes. Uh, first, uh, we wanted to do white spirits. Uh, there's a lot of rums out there. So we started with a vodka and a gin, which is a pretty traditional way to come into distilling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in the first few years, we were playing with stuff. We'd come by and, and say, hey, cool, what do you think about this? He's ah, I don't know about that. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Every now and then. Mostly it was good stuff. But yeah. I, I was happy that you guys were you coming by during this whole process and just, you know, here, here's the newest version of the gin. What do you think? Yeah. It was, that was happening for, for years before you guys had a commercial product on shelves. Yeah, yeah. We've been working on all, we work so on everything if, a lot. If you guys decided to open in 2010, you didn't open until what, 2014, We didn't have a product in, um, on the shelf until... September 2015. September of 2015, or October of 2015, yeah. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah. yeah. It's over two years old. Yeah, 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 yeah. So before that, we were we were playing around a lot um, with recipes. Uh, we have two stills there, a big, a big production still and a small uh, still that very closely mirror each other, so it allowed us to do little little batches of things and, and play around a little bit. Um, and the, one of the ways we balance each other is he's kind of the – takes big leaps – in certain directions and I'm the guy who lets perfect get in the way of good enough. So, you know, a lot of times I'll say, I want this a little bit more. And he's like, just no, this, this is, you know, this is it. You know, this is good. So the small still, I think that's what, one of the things that made me want to talk to you guys that might separate your operation from some of the other plants around town. Cause there's, there's a lot of micro distillers that have opened in new Orleans in the last couple of years, mostly since you guys have opened. Yeah. Um, but one of the things <laughs> That uh, that I think is unique about your guys' operation is the the customization that you guys are able to do. We were at uh, Steve was competing. I just happened to be in attendance at an event a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Bar Centennial it was a health event uh, for bartenders and other people in the service industry. But one of the things that was a prize for the cocktail contest they were running was a custom gin that you could you, whoever won the cocktail contest could come in to your distillery. Taste some, I guess, single botanical distillates. How does that process work? Because it seems like that, that's something you can offer to the casual consumer too. That's not just a, a one-off prize for for the for the winningest bartender in town. This is something that you can offer as a service to everyone if you want a custom gin. Yeah. And so, uh, what's that process like for people to come in and build their own gin? Um, I think what it looks like, and I've done it. I've done it with our gin. So. Um, I think what it looks like on uh, for that bartender is tasting other gins and seeing what you like about them. And then there's a great website called homedistiller.org, and they've actually done some of the legwork of breaking gins down into their ingredients. So these are home distillers, I think, uh, mainly in Australia, that um, that have 
try to recreate different recipes, your Tangerays, your Hendrix, and so on and so forth, and they know what the botanical layouts are. Mm-hmm. Um, and just through playing with so many iterations of gin, I mean, we did massive, massive amounts of iterations of gin. We did, you know, just straight juniper distillations, just straight coriander distillations. And so what I'm going to do with uh, the winner is uh, put, uh, we're going to put together a recipe and basically try it out. And knowing how to balance those those items and how they go is kind of some of the experience that we've learned over the last three years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing is is really going in there knowing um, what what gin you kind of want to get close to. You know, do you want it to be juniper, very juniper forward? Do you want to have a lot of botanicals in there? Um, there's even um, post infusions you can do, and a lot of the bartenders around town that have kind of embraced the 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 craft bartender movement. The more you know. I don't want to say mixology. Some people don't like that word, but but you know, there's there's guys who definitely take uh, more pride whether they're making things at home for the bars, uh, uh, you know, infused syrups, etc. They kind of know what some of those flavors generally can approach, and then what our what we do with people is, and when we've done this a few times in the past, is we'll give you examples. Like we have some gins where we use a lot of juniper, a little bit of juniper, uh, infused the juniper for a long time, for not a long time, etc. Uh, and, and, and then you can kind of taste your way a little bit through that (laughs) and your tongue usually gets burned out a little bit if you're going too fast. And then, um, and then, you you know, balance it out, try one round. And the good news is about our, our, our small still is if we're going to make an afternoon of it, um, you know, we can do a a run in about three hours, three and a half hours on a small still, get you an idea of kind of where you are and we can do it all over again if you don't like the results. Right on. Yeah. Did you all have any goals or aspirations for the flavor profile or the botanicals you wanted to feature in your gin? Or was there an evolution process where you had an idea what you wanted to be in there, but then, you know, through trial and error, you settled on something that is your finished product? I, I think we're somewhere in between because I know Gus definitely wanted to have lavender mm-hmm. um, as, a, as, a, as part of it. Um, I think that uh, we started off just trying to get the balance right between the juniper and the botanicals because mm-hmm. those are those were your our main two uh areas of flavor i guess you could say mm-hmm. and so that process i think was uh was the iterative process so we kind of knew about where we wanted to be um and by the time we decided where we wanted to go then we started to hone in we we had um two two brothers actually uh from the UK come through that were a gin foundry I think yeah uh, they're gin foundry or at gin foundry on Instagram or UK something. or whatever yeah. uh, <laughs> well these guys are um these guys are are just gin freaks and and uh, they do a lot of uh, different distillations and, and different things over in the UK uh, rotovap uh, distillations all kinds of really cool. Uh, different things they can do it's rotovac sorry uh <laughs> a rotary vacuum evaporator you can buy those at brewstock locally if you want to st- <laughs> it's not legal to use them to distill spirits in the united states but you you can well, poly science one will run you about ten thousand fifteen thousand dollars you can get a tabletop rotovac still at brewstock for two hundred dollars but it will be a poly science <laughs> apparently not <laughs> well the uh well these guys came through and and they we were running into this trap with all of our spirits of asking everybody else what they thought. And, um, and 
it's it's always good to have that that feedback, but you really have to answer the question of what do you want to drink, you know, and uh, and really stick to your guns on that for any distillers or brewers or anything. Mm-hmm. So they came through and they tested a few of our iterations, and and all of a sudden they said, well, what do you guys want out of your gin? And it was kind of like a, a you know, a, an awakening of like, yeah, what our gin? We want it to be juniper forward. We wanted it to be uh, heavy in a, in a botanical, but not. But not so juniper forward that was overwhelming, uh, pretty smooth. So, I mean, we really tried to shoot for our and simple. And so ours only has um, nine ingredients. And one of the other things we really wanted to do <laughs> is uh, keep actually back down our citrus, which we didn't really realize. We didn't realize that until we got into it a little bit and just didn't like we we thought it was it was overcomplicating and masking some of the good gin flavors and also we found that a lot of gin cocktails will already ha- will have a fresh citrus component to them and why try to compete with that with uh, a distilled citrus when that fresh citrus can be so clean and and uh, add so much to flavor yeah. so we played a lot with that um with bartenders making different drinks and just kind of looking at it cool is there a particular cocktail that you're like i want my gin to be the best gimlet gin out there or like the best you know classic martini like gin was there a a, a cocktail where you're like you know this has to be perfect when my gin goes into it Hmm. um no not really what we we just actually like (laughs) just drinking it on the rocks right on that's (laughs) that's how we kind of go we we (laughs) kind of go hey do we uh yeah that's that's pretty much how we played with it we do like um we like playing with ours with, uh, you know, kind of a standard bee's knees or, you know, hu- the honey and the, mm-hmm. and the lemon and the gin. But um, but also we wanted it to be uh, juniper forward enough so that it can stand up in a gin and tonic. You cool. know what I mean? Because yeah, you don't want to just lose it. Um, but at the same time, be approachable enough for people that are like, oh, I don't like gin. And that's what I hear a lot when tours come through. People are like, yeah. I don't like gin. And then they taste the gin. Oh, but I like this gin. You yeah. Know? So the modern movement is definitely to move away from juniper and like lessons. A lot of modern gins are so like not juniper forward. It's right. like it questions like, is this actually just, a gin? Or yeah, right? yeah. It's the flavored vodka. What are we talking about here? Yeah. But um, with that, that's a really great point that, you know, from the bartending side, I think we run into it all the time that for a while, like, you know, I've been bartending for a long time now. Um, you know, at some point, like nobody drank gin, like nobody drank gin, right. and it was always the same thing. And I didn't drink gin at the same as well because of my first experience with gin was a lot of people aristocrat out of a handle, and it tasted like a Christmas tree. That's what <laughs> right. people say, right? It's like gin tastes like a Christmas tree. It's like it really doesn't, and not at all. But uh, have uh, what? What are your experiences with that, Cole? As well, the like first the- time I ever got drunk was on gin mixed with Gatorade. I could not drink wait, gin. What flavor Gatorade? Uh, it was the clear one, so it was like it was like one of the Gatorade. ice flavor. Uh, because that's how I could make it like look like Gatorade. So it was like pour out half a Gatorade bottle, fill it up with Bombay Dry. <laughs> I hope your parents are listening right now. They know. <laughs> I got, I that's a mistake you you almost need to make yeah. at some point. In your life. Oh yeah, especially I bet every good bartender started out doing goofy stuff like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. You know? And yeah. it's like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was my first gin experience, and that was my first drunk experience, too, was huh. with gin. And it was a while. It was, it was several years before I could like smell uh, smell gin again and not not be physically repulsed by it. Yeah. As a, uh, now I love it. No, no, mm-hmm. Gin's great. I'll just I'll drink gin on the rocks or pink gin. 
as a bartender, have you seen just as a consumer as the consumer culture has changed and craft cocktails are becoming more prominent? This shift from oh, I don't drink gin or I really don't like gin to like a lot more people ordering gin cocktails or being yeah, more interested think, in types of gin. I think that yeah, you do see more gin being ordered. There's an interest in. I think the interest like the people swayed away from the heavy but like heavy heavy. Junipery gins for a while, and you you saw that the rise of Hendrix. We spoke with a gentleman from Hendrix earlier in the episode, but that sort of mild gin, the, the New West styles. Um, but I think that that now it's swinging back in the opposite direction. That mm-hmm. people want a gin that you can mix in a cocktail, or you can you can dilute with soda or tonic, and it still has a depth of flavor to it. Right. So, and I think the heavy juniper really helps a gin stand up in those in in those applications. Yeah. So I think we're, we're seeing the, the a revival of a more traditional London dry style now. Yeah. I never would have thought like years ago, I never would have thought somebody would walk into the bar and we've got enough gins here at 12 mile limit, I think, but people walk in and like, look at our gin selection and be like, that's all you have. It's like, well, where, where are we living now? I have no idea. You only have 10 gins to choose from. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, when I worked at uh, I, one of my longest tenure jobs back in the day was the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company and, bar, and uh, bartending over there. I don't know if we had a gin there. Like, I, I literally cannot think of what gin we carried. And if we did carry one, it was probably like aristocrat or something in the well just like buried deep in there. But... I can't think of a high end or anything else. Nobody ever ordered gin. Right. Hmm. How many years do y'all think it's been since people started reviving their interest in gin? I think the the biggest the Bombay Sapphire, I think, was a real it was the early nineties, late eighties maybe. The Bombay Sapphire came in and made gin cool again. And then I think Hendrix sort of really yeah. captured that energy and brought it forward. And that was sort of probably late nineties that Hendrix started to become uh prevalent. People yeah. were aware of that. So I think over the course of the night but that, I think that sort of mirrors the the revival of uh, sort of the spirits as a category generally right. that people started to get into things that had flavor vodka dominated the spirits category for so long and vodka is either flavorless or has a like a single flavor profile for flavored vodkas um, and now people were like oh wait liquor actually tastes good like good <laughs> like <laughs> gin tastes good whiskey yeah. tastes yeah. good and it's good because it has flavor not despite that it has flavor i think that there's also with that being said with bombay sapphire and with with gray goose as well i mean they're both under uh bacardi so uh i, I think there was a, a time when it was just liquor was still seen as a luxury item and it, there's a big push to drink, like, you know, the most luxury spirits, which Grey Goose was, yeah. which Bombay Sapphire was as well, too. But it's one of those funny things, like, to the detriment of maybe Bombay. Bombay Dry is a great gin. You know, mm-hmm. Bombay Sapphire is fine, too. I like Bombay East, which I don't think they're going to make anymore. But oh, I thought it was really yeah, good, good. really good gin. Um, but, it. yeah. Yeah, and I like Tangeray. I mean, Tangeray, I think, is just a solid, straight-up gin. Tangeray 10 is yeah. my jam. I love yeah. I think, honestly, a lot. Those are the big, the, I think what, you, what many people would consider sort of the big three London dry gins, your Beefeater, Tangeray, and Bombay Dry, mm-hmm. um, they're all excellent. Yeah. I mean, and Tangeray 10 is also very good, and uh, Beefeater, what is it, 26? What's the, the, the fancy Beefeater? Uh, yeah, that's 26. Okay, yeah. I mean, they have different expressions now, but I think just the classic flagship London Dry Big Three are are excellent. And they've been making them for hundreds of years now. It's like they they really figured that out. You know? yeah. It's a lot of iterations. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's almost like this reverse process as well too when people started drinking cocktails and then they got turned on to gin cocktails. And I feel like as they 
they've gotten a little bit older. They've just started taking things out of the cocktails. It's like, okay, I don't want, like, I'm starting to get heartburn. I don't need the citrus. Like, I'm starting to watch my weight. I don't need the sugar. And then they land on a gin and tonic eventually. It's yeah. like, gin and tonic. That's well, great. Well, the gin and tonic's got, tonic water has a lot of sugar. Don't in tell it. people that. <laughs> don't tell people that. I think when people, yeah, people land on a gin on the rocks, eventually. edit this out. It's just yeah. gin on the rocks. A double. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my process with distilling was when, when I first started over there full time, uh, I was a whiskey drinker, mm-hmm. and so I just loved whiskey. Um, and then we started doing vodkas, and as we got to know vodkas more and more, um, your palate changes, and so you start heading towards vodka. And then I became a vodka drinker, and mm-hmm. then we started working on the gin, and then I became a gin drinker. You know, And so I think the same thing may have happened with people – personally is maybe they've explored these spirits mm-hmm. and then as they get into gin you know they start their palate starts to change and they want that juniper back because that's what i've noticed too is that people don't want a super floral gin with with no hint of juniper they want juniper in there yeah you know they want to know they're drinking gin well and you don't you don't always have to be in the same mood for a spirit i mean there are days when you want to drink uh, a gin there's days when you want to drink a bourbon there's days when you want to drink whatever and even amongst gins there's days when you're in the mood for something floral or heavy juniper so you know and it's okay and that's okay and i think as um as people have kind of realized it's okay to to drink in moderation, you know, that, that, <laughs> that is allowed, yeah, that, that it's okay to just enjoy drinking these spirits and kind of discovering them. Yeah. That is, that is actually a really good point as well. There are a lot more people who are, who will spend money on a single good drink as opposed to like, you know, 10. That's one of the things that I've realized about, cause I only drink occasionally now. I used to drink a lot. Um, and now I don't, but I still drink a little bit and I drink a lot I drink nicer. I can't remember the last time I had a highlight. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I drink, drink a lot of high life in my life. But I, <laughs> I think it's paid like, for most of 12 months when it's renovation. So. <laughs> high life and PBR. Thank you, high life and PBR. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, that I find myself drinking much, much nicer on average things than I used to because the volume's so much lower that I'm still spending a fraction of what I used to spend on alcohol, but I o- almost exclusively drink baller shit <laughs> because, like, because I can. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have two drinks this week. I'm not just going to throw one away on a borderline flavorless alcoholic beverage. I want to have something that's nice that I'm going to enjoy that maybe I haven't had before and really expand my horizons a little bit. Absolutely. You look at your menu. Your menu, for example, you come in and you're almost excited if there's going to be a new cocktail because you don't want to waste that drink or anything on a cocktail that you know, is just a, you know, something in spritz of something, unless it's really good. And, oh, I haven't tried that new gin or I haven't tried this cocktail. How did he do his riff on this? And now you want to see what, even if it's something as small as an infused syrup that was homemade and you're like, oh, I want to see how that is incorporated into the cocktail and you're okay with it not working. And so that's really, that can be really exciting. Um, and that kind of pushes you into that drinking in moderation. It's, it's okay to, to play and experiment with with alcohol. Yeah. One of the things, one of the other things about y'all's distillery versus some of the other, or many, many of the, the sort of new generation of distilleries uh, from producing white spirits at the very least is you guys are actually doing the fermentation on site as well, right? Is that that's yeah. accurate? So, a real yeah. distillery. Yeah. 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 They're, they're yeah. Doing well, yeah. You bring Louisiana sugar. Everything's sugar-based? Everything's everything sugar-based. Right now, okay. everything is sugar-based, yeah. uh, and we do all the fermentation in-house, and that even took uh, about 250 iterations. And we, yeah. we, we did that because of the, the fact that the spirit is created 
at fermentation, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's technically created at harvest, but the yeast is who's doing the work, right? They're creating it, all the good and the bad. Yeah. Stuff. Our smallest employee yeast. <laughs> <laughs> does that do, do? Does that give you? I can see that going one of two ways. That, that it becomes harder to control for consistency if you guys are a relatively small shop putting out your own what i am guessing you still bring it up to a neutral sort of ngs level so neutral grains i guess an ss level neutral neutral spirit spirit. neutral spirit yeah Yeah. so you bring it up to a high enough proof that you're taking a lot of the residual flavor out but do you have a hard time maintaining consistency or is it easier to make it exactly the juice that you want well one of the things that uh gus is actually excellent at is taking notes and so we have i've talked to a lot of distillers from around the country and i said do you take notes when you do your distillation do you take notes with your fermentation they're like no 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 we just you know we throw the yeast in there or do whatever we take notes on everything mm. so we know the temperature we know the you know we know every aspect of our fermentation and so um we're able to get that consistency that way and we're we have a nice system uh, because of my brother and the way he set it up, that we can control all of the factors. And so with our fermentation, we can recreate the exact conditions every time. Right well, yeah. As much as possible. I mean, there's <laughs> always going to be some variation. Um, but that, to us, is what the craft is. I mean, it's it's... Uh, I'm not trying to knock anybody, but buying stuff or, or doing that it, or even augmenting your spirit, is it, it, can, it can work for you. But for us, the fun is, is all the weird little flavors you get. Um, yeah. And then... It, can you do it again? It, can you do it again? And uh, it, we've we've dumped batches before. I mean, we've definitely, you know, and it it sucks when you're paying, <laughs> when you're paying the bills yeah. to go. Oh, we gotta we gotta throw it away. But at the end of the day, you know, it's um, it really makes you feel it, yeah. like, hey, we're we're getting this down. You know, from the bar side, I feel there's a bit of a bait and switch as well. I've been on enough distillery tours where, like, you know, you see this, and they always want to talk. About, like, when you go on a distillery tour, everybody wants to talk about their still. That's the big thing. It's like, check out this still, 100 percent copper. It's part pot, pot, part like column, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And like, it's like, okay, cool. Where's your fermenter at? It's like, oh yeah, we don't. You see barrels in the corner. You're like, oh okay, got it. It's like, what are you really doing here? It's like, oh well, we're gonna take this and run it through here and make a vodka. It's like, it's already a vodka, guys. <laughs> right. Just yeah. add water. Yeah. The the um. That's kind of the model for for the business as it was coming up for the last, I would say, decade or so. Mm-hmm. It was just neutral grain spirits. It has to do with labeling as well. The TTB um, requires you to distill it on site if you're going to say distilled. It doesn't say what. So you can just throw neutral spirits into a still, huh. and now you've distilled it on I site. I never knew that. That's that's a, yeah. that's a good insight. <laughs> so, um, But we, we felt that we were kind of anti-label. We're New Orleans uh, natives, I guess, and we didn't like – some of the things we didn't like that we saw in other things was that you have um, a, a lot of people like using the New Orleans name. We felt like we had ownership okay. of that. And yeah. so we, we, we took that a, a step further to distilling, which was we don't want to be the guys that are like made in New Orleans, but we're actually buying our stuff everywhere else. When, when you say made in New Orleans, you want to be buying from a farm and, you know, using, you know, so, you know, buying everything, making it in-house. And that's, right. that's what we we're trying to do. So uh, I know Cole definitely looking to like open up new places at some point, and uh, I've been looking for a place for a business for a couple of years at this point. Uh, real estate has been very challenging this time period, especially the window that you guys are looking at as well. Um, also, 
you guys jumped in at a point where it's it's a real gamble because it's like you know like locally distilled products were not as prevalent as they are at the moment so is what, what is your perception of how it is right now like i to me like I, I i'm just theoretically thinking of myself being like it's like oh i did all this hard work and like i tried so hard and then you see like a distillery pop up on like in like neighborhoods at this point you're like what the, what the hell <laughs> um you I mean, the short answer is you get a little frustrated sometimes, but at the end of the day, <laughs> brothers, guys, that's, that's an understatement. He's, he's been at the other end of these rants, but you know, yeah, ultimately, yeah. Um, we just had our first meeting of the, the our first pre meeting for a distillers guild oh, okay. kind of thing, and, and honestly, you see, at the end of the day, um, you're. This isn't a new game, right? We didn't just uh, we didn't do. It's not Uber versus Lyft or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. This is, um, and even that doesn't always work out for the first guy on the block. It's about doing the best distillate that you can do and putting it out there, and hopefully it's in line with everybody else's tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bar, I mean, you guys aren't the first bar, but you've carved out <laughs> your name, just the best, right? No, <laughs> but seriously, you really are a really great bar, and it's. I think it's. It takes a little bit of time to build a name, but it's. A, it's a fantastic bar, and it's not about these guys are opening a block away from us. It's about you guys make. I mean, I, if I can just plug, um, can I, the great idea please come back to the menu? It's you on can the, still yeah. get it. We, we I know, but it's not on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe for the next menu, we'll put it back on. Please, that's a, that's that. one you of know, the. I'll put it on record right now. I said, ne- I said, never take it off. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair when enough. we changed the menu, I said, leave it on the menu. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, I don't want to talk just a little bit about because you you've done you, in addition to the custom gins, you also do sort of contract work. You do you do bottling for, for rum and candy flavored rums. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a, and we we talked and it, it hasn't materialized. A lot of the, the resources that I was planning on putting there wound up going into this patio that we're sitting on now. But we talked about starting a line of sort of like the twelve mile limit batch cocktails for for home use. Um, what other what other sort of like projects like that? The contract work have you guys done, or are you interested in pursuing? We've looked at a lot, especially with uh, with whiskeys. Um, our personal take on whiskeys is again we want to ferment them and dis- and age them in-house and for us the minimum age on a whiskey is like five years even though by law it's like two i mean the the i just find that a minimum five years i'd like to be more like an eight um and it also depends on what spirit you're making right um but uh we've looked at that so a lot of people who want to do a brand um come to us for that so we're not against helping people get brands started and they're like oh you know i'm a rapper and i need a i need my my alcohol drink to make my brand complete. Have you done that? No, but we've, we've, <laughs> we've actually had calls. we've had three or four calls about it. And then when we kind of get into ah. some of the pricing on this stuff, it's like, look, we're not we're not taking the risk on this guy. <laughs> like, wait, you mean I have to buy everything? Like, yes. what about my yep. name? We're like, yeah, yeah. Then you, if you make it into the next Ciroc or something, great, fantastic, and it's all yours. But right now, we're not taking the risk. <laughs> That's awesome. I'd like to do more uh, working with hobbyists and enthusiasts, you know, to create individual gins and to create individual rums that I've done before on the small still. So I think that would be really great to work with individuals that are just really interested and we have the still and it's available and they can come in and work with us. Free labor as well, too. You just set yeah. up like a distilling 101 and you yeah. just get interns to come in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> 
All righty, y'all. Well, that's going to wrap it up here. Uh, before we uh, close out this episode of Around with Stephen Cole, we always like to finish up with our parting shots. It's a segment where we allow our fantastic guests to go over who they are again, uh, what they do, what their business or product is, and also anything upcoming that might be happening, any events or special things that people should keep an eye out for. Yeah, any promotions for the end of the year? Any holiday specials? What do, what do we got in store? <laughs> well, uh, I guess I start with my name. Your name's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Gus Hike, uh, the owner and and, I, and one of the distillers at uh, Cajun Spirits Distillery. Uh, we make Crescent Vodka third and Third Ward Gin, both locally. Uh, both ferment and make it all from scratch in-house. And I think the coolest thing that we're going to have out in the next couple months is going to be our white rum finally hitting the market. So I think we should be out with that, we're hoping, by <laughs> Christmas. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> and that will be Tresillo, uh, which is a which is a – it's going to be a fun rum. So – yeah, uh, I'm Edward Hike. I'm uh, the distiller and the the one paid employee of the whole place. And um, I think what I'm looking forward to is opening our tasting room on regular hours, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and so hopefully that'll be coming soon. Coolio, and where can they? Uh, where can people find your distillery as well? We're at twenty five thirty two Poydras. Uh, Right before the Broad Street overpass. Yeah, don't go on the Broad Street overpass. <laughs> Just, yeah, go under go the Broad Street overpass, <laughs> cook around underneath, and you can, yeah, down on that old warehouse road. And you can see us at uh, uh, CajunSpirits.com, and you can also look us up uh, at Cajun Spirits on Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for coming by, guys. It's great to have you. We've been, like like they said, we've been bringing, uh, bringing samples over to 12 Mile for years before they were open. Sort of, <laughs> what do you think of this one? What do you think of this one? I'm really glad that you guys... Are, are are making a go of it, and you're in the in the hood, and it's it's been fun to watch this whole thing be a become a become a thing, become like a real thing. And yeah. <laughs> and no, it's funny. Just real quick, I, I love when I tell people, "Oh yeah, we run a distillery," and they're like, "Oh, good for you! Like, good luck." Like, where can I get your spirits? And I'm like, "Whoa, we're at Rouse's, we're at Whole Foods, we're at Dorniacs." And they're like, "Oh shit, y'all are at Whole Foods? Oh okay. You, so you're serious?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we're serious." <laughs> That's a line. Maybe you should lead off with saying it's like, oh, I've got like a jug in my van. (laughs) (laughs) Draw three X's on. (laughs) No, we're real. (laughs) All right, y'all. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton. And this has been Around with Stephen Cole. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie. I really...